my Costa Judeca is a golden ratio to one another and it's a 3D form. So basically the theory is that the whole universe is this geodesic sphere that is pulsing. So, you know, the more I learned about that side of the geodesic, like how it's all throughout nature, inside of our bodies, around the earth, and potentially in the universe itself, it's like, you know, as within, so without, eventually, I believe there will be a lot of geodesic homes on earth, and this new material science, so it's like all ceramic composites, and the intention is to build homes that have a design life of 500 years and the raw ingredients can come from wastewater treatment plants and from desalination operations as like waste streams. So now we've put together a program with uh, Zappos and City Repair to transcend homelessness. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Iyer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Morgan Beershank, co-founder and CEO of GeoShip, Regenerative Architecture. Welcome, Morgan. Hi, thank you. Their company creates what is dear to most of us and what we all aspire for, home ownership. What are the home ownership rates in the U.S.? Well, you know, the best way to look at the affordability of housing, we believe, is really price-to-income ratio. So if you go back to the 1960s in the U.S., price-to-income ratio of a new home was about 2.5x. So if you're making $50,000 a year, the average price of a new home was $125,000. Today, you know, it's more like 5x to 8x or 9x in some places. So our goal is really by introducing mass production technologies and new material sciences that we can reduce the price to income ratio of single family housing back down to 2.5x median income. So let's first start with regenerative architecture. What is regenerative architecture? A lot of different uh, groups have different definitions. Usually it's applied in an ecological sense in terms of ecological regeneration. So how does the, the architecture contribute to the restoration of ecosystems? So basically reconnecting ecosystems. We actually look at regeneration in three different areas. It's kind of a 3x regeneration. and we're, So we're looking at it ecologically, biologically, and socially. How do we regenerate, which is basically to you know, reconnect systems and undo harm that was done. It's a restoration process on a biological, social, and ecological level. So you go further than sustainable architecture, which are LEED-certified structures with bike racks, solar panels, you know, high efficiency insulation and appliances. You go much further than that. Yeah, much further on just the ecological level and then much further on, you know, applying regeneration to biology and sociology. The structure of your home is very different. They are the geodisc domes. A lot of traditional structures, ancient structures, were built on the same model. Like say we take a teepee or an igloo or they all had curves. When did we transition to this more box-like, block, angular-shaped homes? Yeah, well, I think the transition happened, you know, at different times on different continents. 
but you know for instance here in north america native americans here always basically believed that everything in the universe is trying to be round so they wanted to build their homes in the round and their villages in the round because essentially that's you know what everything in the universe is moving towards the fact that everything is rectilinear today is really you know at one level it's the materials that have been used at another level it's just a certain level of understanding when it comes to a structure buckminster fuller would often say that a, a box is not actually a structure until you triangulate it it's flimsy it doesn't hold itself so it's not a true structure and um, in a rectilinear structure you have uh, load-bearing walls and with a geodesic and other more advanced geometric forms that structure just the skin of the structure is the where the strength comes from you don't need cross beam and whatnot inside or triangulation in the walls to give it the structure you know it's not flimsy so the other side of kind of why is everything rectilinear well the whole kind of a roman grid system where it really started in rome where they would occupy territories and the first thing they would do is kind of drop down these streets with a intersections and you know a roman grid system and that has spilled over into this whole world that we <laughs> now see around us it's a uh, it started with people having a planner lays out a map and they start dropping a grid on it and building from there whereas that's not really in harmony with the nature so if we look at like how the streams flow and how the mountains form how can we build village layouts that are just more you know in harmony with the curves and flows of the natural environment your business model seems to have a philosophical twist to it for instance one of the things on your website a roomy poem jumped out at me. I don't know if it was deliberate or just a coincidence. And the Rumi, the ancient Persian poet said, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. And you have sort of the same philosophy for your ideas beyond the ideas of right angle and hard lines. There is a bioceramic dome, we'll meet you there. What is a bioceramic dome? The geodesic form was originally defined by Plato, you know, 2,500 years ago, and he called it uh, Gaia, which he essentially all of five of the platonic solids can nest inside of this geodesic sphere so that their points touch its points. So he called it uh, the cosmic receptacle, Gaia. It's essentially the ley lines that encircled the earth, which are like rivers of magnetism form a geodesic grid around the earth it's a really fundamental form in nature because it's the most efficient way to enclose space so even like the american institute of architects said that the geodesic dome is the lightest strongest most efficient means of enclosing space known to man we see it uh, in the capsids of the protective protein shells that surround certain microorganisms viruses specifically and others that they nature builds this kind of geodesic around it. And there's even a, a beautiful theory um, that was published in Nature magazine 15 years ago that says that the universe itself is a geodesic. So it's actually one of the things Buckminster Fuller would do is he would you know, build a, an icosahedron out of basically sticks and squeeze it together just a little bit, like put it between his two hands and squeeze it together 
and it becomes a dodecahedron. I cost a dodeca that it's basically the only 3D golden ratio fractal. So those icosododeca is a golden ratio to one another, and it's a 3D form. So basically, the theory is that the whole universe is this geodesic sphere that is pulsing. So, you know, the more I learned about that side of the geodesic, like how it's all throughout nature, inside of our bodies, around the Earth, and potentially in the universe itself, it's like, you know, as within, so without, eventually, I believe there will be a lot of geodesic homes on Earth. And this new material science, you know, Buckminster Fuller said in the kind of 70s and 80s that, you know, the geodesic domes they were building then looked like wooden spaceships, kind of like the right turn down the wrong road. So, you know, that the material, he, he basically predicted that it would be 50 to 100 years until the material science arrived for us to really build geodesic domes in the way that he believed they would eventually come, you know, fill our planet in a sense. Like if you zoom forward, say, 100 years or 200 years or maybe 20 or 50 years, there's more geodesic domes around than there are today because the new material science, which is essentially it's a chemically bonded ceramic. There was a professor named Rustam Roy. He was the head of the biggest material science lab in the U.S. at Penn State and is really a, a legendary material scientist. He passed uh, in 2014, I believe. He was a crystal chemist, so he actually invented like cubic zirconia. And for the last 15 years of his life, he was focused on defining a new science of whole person healing. So he was looking at like, how does a Qigong master focus his attention and change the molecular structure of water in a way that is measurable? So he was actually doing a lot of beautiful science on kind of the structure of water. And during that time, he discovered a new family of materials. He like defined this chemically bonded ceramics as like a new material family. And that his uh, discovering that this new family of materials basically triggered a 12-year art taxpayer-funded R&D project at Argonne National Labs, which is they were looking for a new material science that could solidify highly toxic nuclear waste for permanent long-term storage. So these ceramic materials are, they call them chemically bonded ceramics because essentially if you think of epoxies, cements, and ceramics as like three material families, this new chemically bonded ceramic family fits right in the middle of those three, whereas it has a lot of the properties of an epoxy in that it forms molecular bonds with metal and with wood and with itself. And it has a lot of the properties of a ceramic in that it's highly crystalline and covalent and ionically bonded. But it has a lot of the properties of a cement too in that it's basically a, a water-activated powder that all happens at room temperature. So there's no high heat required like with traditional ceramics. So that new combination of properties basically makes it so that we we are setting up a factory now to injection mold these ceramics into frames and panels that can be built into geodesic structures that, you know, a set of domes that connect to one another. There are structures which are geodisc domes, some designed by uh, Buckminster Fuller and also some other companies which are doing it as 
contemporary structures. And yours is primarily different because it's for a more permanent long-term structure and the materials that you use. Yeah, well, so just to clarify, the geodesic is, like I said, originally defined by Plato 2,500 years ago as like a, a geometry that exists, but it was very hard to build. So what Buckminster Fuller did was invent a synergetic math. It's a whole new kind of math that he used to be able to build geodesic domes. And so he patented the first geodesic dome structures in like the 1950s. And, you know, there, there are quite a few companies out there that are building geodesics that are more like event structures. I mean, they're really popular at, say, Burning Man and uh, different music festivals and also as like little backyard Airbnb kind of structures. But those systems are usually a metal frame and uh, some kind of canvas or skin is pulled over it. So we're building structures that are are all ceramic so the frame and the skin on the outside and the skin on the inside is all ceramic and the insulation is is also a cellular ceramic so it's literally all ceramic composites and the intention is to build homes that have a design life of 500 years and are fireproof and earthquake and hurricane resistant and can't grow mold and can't rot and can easily be repaired and resurfaced with the same ceramic materials and then the challenge is also all of the really building a, a raw materials industry around those ceramics which is a beautiful potential because essentially the the raw ingredients can come from wastewater treatment plants and from desalination operations as like waste streams and then there's a lot of uh, aggregates that can be added to the ceramic that really make it a really versatile regenerative raw material. You're really knowledgeable about this, the engineering, the science, the math behind the whole system of building these domes. Do you have a degree in engineering or it's self-taught or just something that you were really passionate about? I, I do have a degree in engineering. I worked at Intel Corporation right out of university for a few years. But then in, you know, when I was 24, I essentially left my corporate job and bought a one-way ticket to Asia and started traveling with a backpack for about two years. Basically, the last 15 plus years have been travel, meditation, reading, a lot of information activism. I was working on different projects in, in Iceland, like new forms of currency and democracy. And then for the last six years, I've been really deep in geodesic domes and uh, bioceramic materials and the cooperative structures that we need to be able to to really bring this technology into the world in a way that can do maximum good. Most homes, they need a foundation, they need structures which will hold it up. And especially in the Northern Hemisphere, you need it to go below the frost line. But for the geodesic dome, you don't need any of those, right? It can sit on top of the land. Yeah, it can sit on top of the land because the dome is essentially like a cup or a bowl, you know, imagine you put a bowl on top of a cutting board and shake the cutting board. That's like an earthquake happening. It's like the, the dome can pick it up and move it, but stays together as a structure versus a, a rectilinear home that would break. So how are they fastened to the ground? Yeah, so it really depends on what kind of ground it is. But in a lot of the same ways that homes are today, uh, it could be you, know, you could pour a slab foundation and build the dome on a slab. You could build a, a platform 
and build the dome on a platform. But the most common way that we're really designing them for is we have a set of foundation blocks that basically you make a a rubble trench foundation, which was really popularized by um, Frank Lloyd Wright. And you set these base blocks around the foundation and the whole dome system is essentially a bunch of struts and hubs and panels that fit together like a piece of Ikea furniture or something to build the dome up. And all of it is bonded together with the ceramic, which acts like a glue. So that's one one thing that's really unique about the building system. Because of this material science, we can make the frames and the panels and the mortar between them all the same material. So it essentially becomes a a monolithic structure when it's assembled on site, yet it's precast in or injection molded in parts. How long would, say, a 1,500-square-foot home take to be assembled? Once the, you know, all the permitting and whatnot is done and there's a, a foundation in place, or at least like a flat, say there's just a flat spot and we do the rebel trench and traditional foundation the way we're talking about, it would be you know, three days go together very quickly. Wow. These are with the windows put in. I'm assuming you don't need to paint these panels. No, you don't need to paint. You can paint, but you don't need to. We can, one of the unique things in a precast operation like we're building is that there's a lot of different colors and textures that can be molded into the ceramics. So there's just a lot of variation. And a 1,500-square-foot dome that's about 250 triangular panels so imagine you're half or they're usually about a 55 or 60 percent of a sphere so it's a little more than a half sphere but if you're standing in there and you have 200 triangles around you any of those can be windows or skylights so there's just a lot of basically variation and geometry that comes out when you can have such flexibility in the the window configurations so what about the electrical lines, uh, outlets, your appliances? Yeah, that is essentially part of the multi-stakeholder cooperative model that we're developing is all the mechanical systems, the cabinets, the furniture, and everything can be part of a, a cottage industry. So theoretically, all that would come with the ceramic dome. In terms of like running plumbing and electrical, uh, it works very similar to uh, the way it's done today in that, you know, the first thing that you build is the frame, uh, then you put the exterior skin on, and then you can run all your electrical and plumbing inside the walls and then put the interior skin on and fill it as a, with a cavity fill insulation. And the insulation is also ceramic. Yeah, we're designing it so that a lot of different insulations can be used from cellulose, wool, mats, or denim, or the one that we prefer is a cellular ceramic. It's the same material, just embedded with air. So it's a really lightweight, about five pounds per cubic foot, just very light inside the wall cavity. Your structures seem so fascinating. It almost reminds me of something which is futuristic something out of science fiction. It has so many very sustainable, well-thought-out features. It also has a lot of commonality with the ancient structures and, you know, nature's technology. So it's kind of a, a hybrid in a sense. And there's also a lot of unique properties of the material science, like electromagnetically. You know, I mentioned that 
was originally developed by the nuclear industry to solidify highly radiated toxic waste. Well, there are really unique uh, radiation shielding properties of the ceramic. It is essentially a high dielectric and paramagnetic. So what that means is like a capacitor in our electronic devices, it can actually generate an internal charge field. So if you look at how the ancients were building pyramids and stone circles and whatnot, like why feel different? You know, if you're sensitive, you can actually feel when you walk into a a stone circle. And there's actually great science that was coming out of um, Russia, especially around the effects of pyramids when they're built with the right proportions and the right materials. They actually kind of function like a an energy accumulator. You know, it's a focusing the energy into a sweet spot. And the same thing happens with domes, especially the domes that we're building have a kind of a stellated top. So essentially you have a five-sided pyramid at the top of the dome. And so now there's this whole science of, um, well, you know, it was called the Vastu Shastra, ancient Indian science of kind of sacred architecture. And now there's more modern versions of it that are known as biogeometry. It's basically the study of how everything in our physical environment can affect the patterns of energy flow in sort of the, the superfluid ether, right? So if we understand that there's an electromagnetic field that surrounds us all the time, how do we build structures and homes that are really designed to, to harmonize the, the patterns that are in that electromagnetic field? Talking a little bit more about the structure, it can be made multi-story and how big can it be made? You know, so for the present day uh, homeowner who wants this larger, bigger home, but they want something which is which has all these unique features. Yeah, well, so the core technology that we're developing is really this ceramic injection molding. So it, ultimately, there are all many different sizes, big sizes that could be built. But you know, where we're we're really focused is on kind of the small, medium-sized homes. But essentially, we have three size geodesic domes. The first one is a 16-foot diameter. The next one is a 27-foot diameter. And the biggest one is a 36-foot diameter. And they can all be connected to one another, right? So if you have a 36-foot dome is essentially about 1,000 square feet on the ground floor. And then another, you know, 500 to 700 square feet in kind of the, the second story. And then you can connect that to two medium-sized domes or two small domes or five medium-sized domes. So basically you can, by connecting the domes together, you can have many thousands of square feet kind of unlimited because you could continue building and connecting more domes together. I was trying to visualize as you speak and I'm thinking of a curved structure. How do you place a bookcase? How tall are these triangles? They're all around uh, three and a half to five feet on edge. So, you know, when it comes to like placing a bookcase, all the domes, you can walk up and touch your toes on the where the floor and wall meet and not hit your head. Right. It's always like I said, they're, they're more than a half sphere. So it's actually kind of goes out a little bit at the bottom. So placing bookcases and stuff, generally you can push it right up to the wall. Or maybe it's a there's a couple inch gap between the wall and the bookcase. Uh, we're also are designing a lot of like a system that essentially you know the geodesic dome is all these triangles, but every set of triangles makes either a hexagon or a pentagon, right? So five triangles that make a pentagon. The total diameter of that pentagon is maybe 
somewhere between six and nine feet, depending on the size of the dome. So there's a, a wall piece that we can fit into that pentagon to give you like a, a flat pentagon or a flat hexagon to be able to just change up the space. The third part of your mission to build a cooperative space. The National Institute of Mental Health says in 2017, around 7% of Americans suffered at least one major depressive episode. And as recently as August 2020, Harvard University conducted a large scale which focused on 106 different lifestyle behaviors that you can change to help people who suffer from depression to overcome depression. And one of the main things was socializing, confiding in friends, have visitors and friends talk by. Was that your vision when you started thinking how these homes should be structured in a more cooperative way? Yeah. So again, the the word cooperative applies to what we're doing on multiple levels. So at one level, we're structuring GeoShip as a, the business structure is a multi-stakeholder cooperative, which basically means that customers and nature, so the earth, will have equity in the company along with investors and workers. So we're distributing equity to multiple stakeholders, which is called a multi-stakeholder cooperative. So how would that work? I want to buy a geodesic home. As a customer, you automatically have shares in the company, equity in the company. And you said the workers too. So how would they? So is it a worker owned? Partially. I mean, most tech companies today, you know, uh, issue employee stock options. And I mean, that's just, we do the same thing for workers. We issue stock options. And then the customers also have equity. And through, we're partnering with um, an organization in New Zealand called Earth Equity. And they have been working with the Maori tribe in New Zealand to get personhood for nature. So they have certain sacred mountains and rivers, like um, right now, River Wanganui and Mount Taranaki, are both recognized in the court system as like natural beings. So they have trustees that represent their interests and the trustees are essentially indigenous activists. So now that those mountain and river is recognized as in the court system as natural beings, it means that corporations can issue equity to nature. So it's a way to, to basically address sort of the externalities of cost that are inherent in pretty much every corporation that uses you know, nature's raw materials. Your thoughts are so profound and groundbreaking, not mainstream. You are running a business and you have to sell, you have to convince. So how do you communicate all this? Well, at this point, we are building a business. We're not selling domes yet. So we're building the factory and we're building out the messaging and also the another aspect of cooperative that we bring into our model is really around village building. So if you look at like how neighborhoods are built today, it's usually a, a developer that buys land and gets some other wealthy people or banks together to finance the construction of homes, and then they sell those to buyers. And so we're kind of turning the tables there and putting a, a system together so that people can build intentional villages, right? So you can kind of come onto our website and say, you make a declaration and you gather the people together that you want to to build with and it might be five people or it might be 200 people and essentially we are setting up a 3d environment so that you can collaborate to design a village together like actually virtual reality essentially be able to 
to configure a village so you have a really clear vision of what you're moving toward as a community. And then we work with that community to go through the whole design build process from acquiring land, setting up uh, community land trusts, potentially, and little micro enterprises for the village so that people don't have to you know, commute to a job somewhere, but the people who come together to build together actually have a way to you know, work together as well and um, be in service. So the cooperative aspect is kind of built into our model in that sense. And then also from, uh, you know, you brought up loneliness. One of the key solutions we believe to, to loneliness is to really redesign how our villages and cities work, right? To There's a whole science of uh, city building that is basically called like place culture. So how do we build um, villages? There's some really basic tenants like um, a central gathering place and sort of a, a weave of paths so that people run into one another more often and certain gateways that designate this space is for this quality of use, right? So bringing all these place culture aspects together to really build villages that essentially enhance communication. You know, it's about building uh, environments that get people to to communicate more. And that's part of a, a project we're working with on Zappos, which is a company in Las Vegas that has, you know, 1,600 employees and no management hierarchy. So they're really pushing the boundaries of like uh, self-management and how to kind of organize companies in that way. And then we're also working with uh, the city repair organization in Portland, and they've built many uh, transitional villages for people going through homelessness in a way that is essentially they build a village that is managed by the people who are living there. Uh, so, And the people who are living there are engaged in the construction of the village and the kind of running of the village. So basically participatory democracy and placemaking and permaculture. How do we build villages around those principles? So now we put together a program with uh, Zappos and City Repair to transcend homelessness. So the plan is we build precast plants outside of major cities, starting with uh, Las Vegas, with a business model of like for every you know two or three homes that it's able to sell, it can donate one to a transitional village, and the villages are all built around these models of placemaking and permaculture and participatory democracy and new work paradigms where Zappos says they're on a thousand year journey to a new work paradigm where they're instead of jobs, we understand who the human being is and what gifts they carry. And we craft a job that fits the human rather than trying to fit humans into jobs. So kind of bringing those new approaches together into a really scalable model to serve homeless communities and scalable because it's it's not based on a, a nonprofit approach where they have to find money from some source and then kind of dump it on a solution. Instead, it's self-generative and in that it's kind of a profit-for-all approach. So where does Vastu Shastra fit into this? Is there a scientific basis for Vastu Shastra? Or is it something more philosophical, metaphysical? Yeah, there's a very strong scientific basis for Vastu. It's essentially a you know ancient temple-building science that was originated in uh, ancient India slash Egypt. And it's really based on building uh, structures that resonate with biology and resonate with the universe so we can actually help people's bodies come into resonance with the natural world by the way the dimensions. And they kind of understand the temple 
or the structure as like a musical instrument, right? So how do they actually tune the resonance and vibrations in this space to be biologically kind of supportive? Say you had to apply three principles of Vastu to your geodesic home, what would it be? Is it something like the doors should face one direction? Because most of the temples in India, the doors face east or west. Yeah, there's a lot of things happening now in the modern world that weren't happening then. So, you know, just in terms of like sources of electromagnetic radiation uh, that we have to be more aware of. So, you, you know, no matter how well tuned the building might be, if there's a, a cell phone tower right over, over the top of it that it hasn't been kind of designed for, then that's a problem. So really the principles that we apply are, are one, to understand the sources of non-native electromagnetic radiation and just take steps to kind of mitigate that. And there's a lot that you can do, you know, from not just shielding, but also kind of harmonizing those those non-native EMF sources. And then it's about positioning the building in the right way so that, uh, like you said, like you mentioned, the doors are facing the right direction and that sort of the interior is designed in a way that is, you know, enhances the flow of the way that the people are moving or working or living in that space. And then just the dimensions of the building. So the, the dimensions that we chose for the dome are in alignment with sort of the, the Vastu principles. And it gets very specific in terms of the, you know, exactly the length of the struts and the diameter of the building and whatnot to actually get these, these measurements. It's a whole Vastu math that's applied. How did you learn this? I haven't really. We have experts in the Vastu who consult with us. And I've learned how everything comes together in a sense, but I don't, can't get, especially with the Vastu stuff, I can't get too deep into the, into the answers. I just know who to ask and how to ask. So what about repair and maintenance of this home? And in terms of maintenance costs, what would be the maintenance costs? Yeah, so the only maintenance that required is like a, a washing once every few years. And if damage happens, let's say like a tree falls and say does some damage to the exterior, you can actually mix the ceramic you know, with water on site and apply it to the damage and it becomes a waterproof permanent repair and you can also you know at some point you know maybe 50 or 100 years down the down the road the dome needs to be resurfaced so you can actually spray the ceramic like a paint in a very thin coating and be able to resurface the whole structure so because you can repair it and resurface it with the same ceramic materials it really extends the life to at least 500 years it's hard to hard to even talk in you know terms that are so far out, but that's the potential of ceramic architecture is that there's nothing to burn or to rot or to corrode, and it's repaired and resurfaced with the same material. And how much would a structure, going back to our original example, a 1,500-square-foot house cost? Sort of initial pricing that we're starting with is, you know, a 1,500-square-foot dome is like in the range of 170 to 210,000. And of course, it's just a a big range depending on the the mechanical systems and the you know interior design and and whatnot and of course the the land that is built on but the potential is that it's a mass production technology so as the technology scales and the raw material industry 
scales, you know, we're able to buy materials and more bulk kind of work up chain in a sense to process our own raw materials, then the prices can come way down. You know, it's really a new affordability curve that we're able to to leap onto because, you know, essentially the way that we're building today, over 90% of the structures that are built today are built on site with timber frames and uh, the same way that they were building in the you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it kind of hit its peak. That building method really, its maximum efficiency was way back in the 1950s. And pretty much since then, the prices have gone up. You know, the cost to build has actually gone up. Whereas usually with the production technologies, the cost goes down over time because you gain efficiencies and scale, but that's just past its uh, peak. So this really is a leap onto a new housing affordability curve. And also the toxicity of these homes has gone up too. How tightly they're sealed, the VOCs and... Yeah, and that's really a an unfortunate combination of a lot of potentially toxic materials combined with like these sort of passive house designs where they're very airtight. So you end up with potentially major health problems. So the way that we address... Uh, regeneration from like a biological perspective is one, you know, removing all of the potentially toxic materials. So there's no, it's all ceramic composites. One of the industries that these same ceramics are used in is the orthopedics industry. So they actually use the same material science to repair bones because the material is, you know, non-toxic and beyond non-toxic, it's biologically compatible. The bone will actually grow into and around that ceramic. Removing all the toxic materials is one step. The next steps are really to look at like, what were the natural conditions that humans evolved with on earth? How have those changed and how can we, you know, restore them more? And so if you look at, you know, humans were walking with uh, leather soles or bare feet. So there's an electrical connection to the earth an exchange of electrons with the earth. Like imagine you make a stone circle out in a field and sit uh, you feel a connection to the earth. You have light coming in from all directions, a nice breeze coming through, or like, you know, not stagnant air in every corner in a rectilinear house. Like if you look at, you're probably in a, a rectangular room right now. If you look at the corners, those are places of stagnation in a sense. It's where cobwebs grow and dust accumulates. So by removing the corners, it's really this combination of light, water, and electromagnetic uh, radiation. So how do we restore the natural conditions that humans had on earth? And that's really the goal in the architecture is to optimize the light and the water and the electromagnetic environment so that it's as close as possible to what we evolved with naturally. Say I place the order today for my geoship home. When will I get it? Or when is the next geoship village going to be built? Yeah. So Right now, you can't even place an order. We're launching a new website where people will be able to make uh, pre-orders. And we're just building the manufacturing facility now. We'll be in kind of pilot production. So just very limited number of domes to just kind of uh, test everything out in different climates. And then really in 2022, we'll start a more significant level of production. So it's, people go onto our website and make a pre-order. It's probably two to three years out. Almost like the Tesla of homes. Yeah, we're essentially using very similar model to Tesla Motors in that you'd make a, a fully refundable pre-order that you could 
you know, cancel at any time and get your money back. But it's just a way to to basically validate that this is a solution that people want in the world so that we can you know, raise the capital that we need to build up a production facility. On that positive note, thank you so much, Morgan, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. You're most welcome. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. Remember to rate and review us on Apple or Google Podcasts. To learn more about this and other episodes, subscribe to our Facebook and Instagram page, Mindful Businesses Podcast. If you learned a thing or two today, Share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.